This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and we'll be looking at, in just a moment, chapter 4, and looking at four or five verses. We'll be in some other scriptures, but just keep your Bibles open there. Most of the time, when you speak or write on a topic, you do so from your strengths. If you read articles and books and blogs and and listen to podcasts, almost always they approach it from the standpoint of having been successful in that particular area. They've become a CEO or maybe they climbed Mount Everest or they've learned how to stay physically fit and, uh, you know, just been successful and, and, you know, financially, whatever. I saw an article a few days ago and the title went something like this, How to Retire at the Age of 35. And unfortunately for me, that bus left the station, ship sailed a long time ago, but I I read it, and it was written by a a man that was able to retire at the age of 35. That was his strength, and so you typically write or speak from your strengths. But today, as we begin a new series of sermons uh, entitled, Who's Better? I'm going to do the opposite. I will be speaking from my weakness which in a sense causes me to tell you to do as I say, not as I do, which I think is the definition of hypocrisy. And I know I'm not doing a very good job of promoting this series, but, but, but someone once said that if you speak from your weaknesses, you'll never run out of material. Speaking from my strength, I ran out of material a long time ago. So over the next two, maybe three weeks in this series, I'm going to speak straight out of my weakness. Now, to set the stage for this series, um, just a couple of moments of transparency. Here's what I've noticed about me. And and I know most of you are way more mature and godly and would, would never do this. But I've noticed that I tend to look to my left, I guess you're right, and then... I look to my right, and, and then I kind of just scan, and I look all around to see how everybody else is doing. And, and then I compare myself, and here's what I do. I determine my self-worth based on how well I'm doing in comparison to others. Now, I know this is wrong. It's sinful. I was hoping with age that I would grow out of this, and I've gotten a little bit better, but I haven't fully conquered it yet. Now, now sometimes I try to cover it up and I blurt out the statement that we all make at times and and I will say, well, I really don't care what people think about me. Um, But but when I say that, I kind of lie because I I do care. And and I know you say the same thing and I had somebody say this to me this past week. Well, I don't give a rip about what people think about me. But you know what? You do. We do. We may not admit it, but we do care. Now, with me, it began probably where it began with most of you. It it began in school. Uh, I don't remember much about my elementary days. I think I just kind of blanked out. Part of my elementary days, uh, first grade specifically, was at a boarding school in South America. Now, I didn't go to boarding school because I was a bad boy or anything like that. You would know that I I was always the perfect child. But my, my parents were missionaries. And this was before homeschooling really got got big and took off. And, and, and so where my parents, my missionary parents lived, there, there was no adequate school. And so they tried to figure out, you know, again, homeschooling, this was before that. 
So they took me to a boarding school. They, they took me on a 10 to 12 hour drive across a mountain range, Andean mountain range, where you went up about 16,000 feet, higher than any of the 14ers, guys, if you've climbed in Colorado. And uh, they dropped me off there as a first grader. And um, as you can imagine, this was a really, really tough time for me because back then there was no FaceTime, uh, you know, WhatsApp or anything like that. No cell phones, no texting. There were landlines, but at that time it was super expensive to make a call. And so I got an occasional letter from my parents and I got to see them maybe twice a semester and that was it. I don't remember a whole lot about my first grade uh, time, but I do remember it was really, really hard for me. I was so homesick. Well, after that year, mom and dad said that sending me to boarding school was one of their greatest regrets. And so they made other arrangements after that. Uh, a few years later, I, I moved into my middle school years and then eventually on into my high school years. And, and, and I remember plenty about those years, some of it good, a lot of it bad. And, and, and again, remember, since my parents were in ministry, what they did is they moved to different cities to serve. And so, you know, I was thrown all of a sudden into a new school and I'd be there a year or two or three, whatever. Then I couldn't develop any deep roots and then I'd be thrown into another school. And so way too often what would happen is I would go into this new school and and there would be kids that had grown up together. They'd been friends all of their lives. They had these little cliques and and uh, so I, I, I remember, and this, this is still kind of painful, that when I would walk in immediately, it was like a cool north wind had blown in. And all of these kids that had grown up together, they were friends. It got deathly, deathly silent because they thought, here's a new kid. There's actually a new kid in our class. Well, and you know that middle schoolers and high schoolers don't typically go out of their way to make an outsider feel welcome. And being on the extremely shy side, that, that was so tough for me. And, and, and I know, you know, God has a, a sense of humor to call me into ministry where I have a public ministry, but still there is this side of me and my wife knows all about it that, that is shy. And, and, uh, they're, they're on, on occasion, you know, I'm in my office and I know I'm supposed to come in here and preach. In fact, this morning was one of those mornings and faith basically had to coax me out of my office, promising me a piece of chocolate candy. You know, if I would just come in here and do my job and preach and, uh, because I still struggle. And, and sometimes before, uh, you know, a big funeral or sometimes before a wedding, I'll be, I'm just kind of telling you, just, you, you know, all about me. I'll be in my office, just pacing back and forth, just a nervous wreck going back and forth, back and forth. Well, um, you know, I guess what really made uh, this hard growing up is that I, I knew, you know, beyond that, being unsettled, but I knew even during my middle school years, when middle schoolers, you, you know, you've had middle schoolers and, and nothing against them. I know we have some here today, but typically middle schoolers, they think the world revolves around them. I thought I might hear an amen there. It's probably best that you didn't say Amen. Uh, but, but even during my middle school years, when, when the world was supposed to revolve around me, I knew that even then I wasn't very good looking. Now, I don't know when it really clicked for me because that's changed now. Uh, but, but, but I actually knew I, I, I wasn't good looking and, and I knew my nose was big and, 
And I, and, and I could smoke a cigar in a rainstorm, that cigar not go out because my, my, my nose is so big. And, and I, I, I knew even in middle school that my hair was not cool. And, and, and I could do okay in sports. I wasn't terrible, yet I wasn't a natural and there was always someone better. And even though I got good grades and, and did pretty well in the classroom, yet it didn't come easy for me. And, and, and so I would study hard and sometimes into the wee hours of the, the morning while others could just kind of look at it, wing it and ace it. But anyway, all of that to say that my insecurity caused me to begin measuring my value by comparing myself to others. And here's what would happen. If after comparing myself to others, and if I thought I came out on top, you know, as the better one, I would feel pretty good about myself. For a little while, that is. But but if I, as I compared myself to others, if I felt like that they were better than I was, this took me into a world of self-pity, and I bottomed out. You probably have your own story that's, familiar, that, that's similar. But then I got a break. And that break came when I went to college. And people began to discover that I could play the trumpet and, and I could play by ear. And if you're not into music, that doesn't mean you play with your ear. It just means that you can listen to a song and, and pick it up and play it without music. And, and so people began to notice that. And, and in my mind, I began to gain a measure of respect. And, and I began to seriously study trumpet under a professional trumpet player in Kansas City that played at major events and even played at Chiefs games. And, and that was a long time ago when the trumpet was still considered a valid instrument. And now, unless you play guitar, you're a nothing. But at, at that point, the trumpet was still a respected instrument. And, but I began to study trumpet. And, and, and so during my lunch hours, I would eat my lunch quickly or skip it altogether and, and go to the music hall and find an empty practice room and and I would, I would practice my trumpet for an hour or so. In fact, I went one period of time, I went for over three years and never missed one day of practice. Never. And, and of course, that's whenever I, I've told you the story where I, I was practicing out in the Walmart parking lot because I lived in a basement apartment and I hadn't gotten in my practice. So I went to a Walmart parking lot practicing my trumpet in my car. And all of a sudden I'm surrounded by these floodlights and squad cars. And they're wondering what I am doing playing a trumpet out in the Walmart. And this was about midnight. And um, so, you know, that, that was just kind of embarrassing there. But anyway, I got to where I was being asked to play trumpet at weddings and, and different events. And, and I could just about play any kind of music except I was really weak when it came to playing jazz. And that was frustrating to me because I love jazz. Jazz is one of my favorite styles of music. I, I wanted to be Louis Armstrong, but I could never completely get the, pardon me, but the swing of, of jazz. And so even though I, I was never this incredible once in a generation talent at trumpet, yet, yet I got to where I could do fairly well. And I took first chair in the college band and was part of different ensembles. And I was feeling pretty good about myself again. But, but, but as I, you know, as I compared myself to them, that's what made me feel good because in my circle, I was pretty decent. Well, it got even better. I, my college asked me to be part of a group that traveled to represent the college. And they put me on a scholarship and put me in with three other guys. And this was kind of interesting. We all played trumpet. So you had four trumpet players and four singers. And, and there we are traveling the country, living the dream. And, and, and I know, again, today, the trumpet has ceased to be in the list of modern day instruments. It's kind of like the harp in the Old Testament. It's a has-been. But, but finally, I was somebody. It was all about comparison. 
in, in my circle. And, and, and admittedly, it was a small circle. I didn't go to a major university or anything like that. So, so, so d- d- don't be that impressed. But I, um, I was still the best in my circle. But then one day my life came crashing down. At a camp, there was somebody there that was supposedly a good trumpet player, and I was skeptical. I mean, I'd started believing my own press clippings and thought I was decent, and so I thought, sure, bring him on. Let me hear him. He was just this kid in high school. I was college. He picked up his trumpet, and he began to play. And did he ever play? But I was devastated. I mean, he was sick, and that means good. I mean, he's really good. He was sick. And he made me look like a beginner. And he could even play jazz. And I used to have a pretty good range. And if you're not a trumpet player, this doesn't mean anything to you. But on a, on a good day with the right mouthpiece, I could screech out, you know, some double high C's. And he could stay up there all day long. And he was just this dumb high school kid. I even had long hair, looked like a hippie. And you know how we all have these memories that are sort of etched in our minds? Like the whole world slows down and goes into slow motion. And even though this was years ago, whenever that boy played his trumpet, it was like I can still remember how my world came crashing down. And it was like I couldn't stand him. I almost hated him. It was almost like I hated the trumpet. I should have taken up the guitar right then. Now, some of you, you are way more mature than that. But some of you aren't. And if we're not careful, we begin to live in a world where we're always looking to our left and we're looking to our right. We're trying to figure out who's better. And basically, we all want er added to the adjectives that describe us. Somebody called it the land of er. You know, we want to be richer. We want to be skinnier. We want to be smarter, taller, prettier, happier, hipper, gooder, talented er. We want more er. And then it gets even worse because you start dating and you want your boyfriend or your girlfriend to have some er. And then you get married and we start erring them and we say to our wife, honey, you need to get a little less sir there. Or she snaps back and says, well, honey, you need to be more muscular. And then you have kids and you see how advanced someone else's kids are because they skipped a grade and and they're playing varsity sports and they're only in middle school. And and so you start comparing your kids to someone else's kids and say, you need to be smarter. You need to jump higher. You need to run faster. And then you won't admit this, but you love it when your friends' kids mess up, don't you? You love it when they get in trouble and... Now, you don't say that out loud because Christians aren't supposed to think that way, but your friend's kids mess up. uh, And on the outside, you say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, my heart breaks for you. But on the inside, you're going, yes, yes. 
If you don't think there's sin in the world, just pay attention to your feelings of elation when something bad happens to someone you're jealous of. And then there's the other side of it. There, there are people who, who really do have a little less er than us. And so we look at them because their son is a little slower or their daughter is a little shorter or he's a little chunkier or that family is a little poorer or that guy that sits on the front row is a little nerdier. And so we begin to feel superior. Well, I don't have to tell you what a dangerous thing that is. So bottom line, if you don't get anything else out of this series, if you fall asleep in the next 30 seconds, if you don't come back, here's what I don't want you to forget. There is no win in comparison. There's no win. There's no finish line. There's no final sense of satisfaction. If you compare yourself and find out that you're better than someone else, you don't win. If, if you're not quite as good as someone else, you don't win. There's no win in comparison. In fact, some of you, if you would be honest, you have debt because of this. You've purchased things, you're driving things, you're living in things, you're wearing things, you vacationed in certain places, and the only reason you did all of those things is because you saw what other people were doing and, and you're trying to keep up, keep up with them. And that's taken its toll on you financially. Or... Maybe some of you, you're just pushing and pushing and pushing your kids because you've compared them them with other kids and and you want your kids to be better than so-and-so's kids because, listen, you get your self-worth when your kids star on the team or come out on top. And again, this is a dangerous, dangerous thing. In fact, the wisest man who ever lived other than Jesus, what was his name? Solomon, he said this in Proverbs 14.30, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. Now, the amazing thing is I've wrestled with this in my own life because remember, today I'm speaking to you from my weakness. But as I've wrestled with this, I am absolutely amazed at how Scripture deals with my problem. And it deals with your problem. And so today we're going to look at some things Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes said. And remember, this is, this is Solomon, okay? This is not a dud. This is Solomon who accomplished more than you will ever accomplish. This is Solomon whose wives were prettier than your wife. Not mine, but yours. <laughs> this is Solomon who had more money than Bill Gates and Warren Buffett put together. This is Solomon who created one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Solomon who had kings and queens come to him and ask for wisdom. And so Solomon addresses this issue of our tendency to compare ourselves to other people. And let's hear what he says to us in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. And I saw that all labor, how much labor? All labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. So so Solomon was like, you know, I'm a student of behavior. I go to the mall and just watch people. And I've come to the conclusion that what drives people to work harder and longer and what drives people to accomplish more is that they look around. They notice where others are shopping. They notice what others are wearing. They take note of what they're driving. They look at where they're living. And those factors are what push them to work themselves to the bone. They feel 
they have to keep up with their neighbors. How did that work out for them? Well, finishing that verse, I saw that all labor, all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So, Solomon, what do you think about this whole thing of looking at everybody to see how I compare? Well, Solomon says, it's like chasing after the wind. You can't ever catch it. There's no finish line. There's never a sense of satisfaction, never a sense of tranquility. To which some of you men that are paying attention, that are highly motivated to make an extra buck, will ask, okay, Solomon, are you just saying that we're not supposed to be motivated and, you know, we ought to just kind of sit back and fill out papers and go on welfare, you know, just kind of fold our arms? Well, well, no. Solomon answers that in the next phrase. Wrong answer there, Joe. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 5, says, The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. So Solomon is not saying that you shouldn't be driven and motivated. He's not saying that you shouldn't try to make an extra buck. Here's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, My name is Solomon. Have you seen my temple? Pretty amazing, isn't it? And it was an amazing place. Uh, My name is Solomon. Have you seen my hanging gardens? One of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, My name is Solomon. Listen, I've got 300 wives and 600 concubines. I'm a busy guy. I know a thing or two about women. Uh, My name is Solomon. I have more gold than Fort Knox. Uh, My name is Solomon. I'm pretty successful. I've done pretty well for myself. And and I'm not telling you just to sit around and do nothing. Only fools fold their hands, fold their arms, and do nothing. Uh, Okay, you say, wait a minute, Solomon, you're confusing me. You just said working long hours to keep up with our neighbors is meaningless. Then you said if you fold your hands, you will come to financial ruin. What what are you saying? Well, thankfully, he answers that in the next verse in Ecclesiastes 4, 6. It says, Better one handful, try try to visualize this, with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, we're getting to the core of the lesson here. Solomon says it's better to have one handful, or in other words, moderate success. It's better to have one handful with tranquility than to have two handfuls of great wealth and success. But in order to get there, you have to push and shove and work yourself to the bone and and create stress in your marriage and sacrifice your health and ignore your kids and lose peace and tranquility. I'd like to say this together. You know, better one handful with tranquility. Better one handful with tranquility. Okay, can we say that on the count of three? One, two, three. Better one handful with tranquility. Say it again. Better one handful with tranquility. And so, let that thought guide you and guide your actions as you begin to reach for more and take on an extra job the whole time justifying it by saying, well, I'm just trying to do what's best for my family. But in the process, you neglect your family? Or in the process, you neglect your wife? 
or in the process you neglect your God. And also remember this concept as you push your daughter because someone else's daughter has a little bit higher GPA or or as you begin to push your son into sports, even though he has no interest and is not really athletically inclined, remember one handful with tranquility is better than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Well, Solomon, the wisest guy in the world, doesn't stop there. He gives us another visual in, in Ecclesiastes chapter, same, same chapter, chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. It's like Solomon said, welcome to my sermon today. We're going to talk about some meaningless and worthless stuff. There was a man all alone and listened to his situation. He had neither son nor brother. Now, what does that mean? Well, in this culture that he was writing... That meant he had nobody to leave an inheritance to. I mean, you couldn't leave your inheritance to your wife. Women weren't allowed to inherit anything 3,000 years ago. And, and so Solomon says, here's a man. He has no one to leave his inheritance to. He's all alone. Yet, check this out. There was no end to his toil. In other words, he working and working. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So, this guy is working his tail off. He still wants more. He doesn't have anybody to leave it to. And it's like all of a sudden, one day, he has this epiphany, this, this moment of sudden insight. And, and he asks the question, ah, ah, For whom am I toiling, he asks. In other words, why am I, why am I doing this? Who's going to get this? I don't have any relatives to leave this to that will appreciate it. And he goes on and says, why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? So I'm working 12 hours a day. I take on side jobs. I even work weekends. But I'm not enjoying any of this because all I do is work, work, work. And then Solomon summarizes his actions. He says, this too is meaningless a miserable business. As long as you're always trying to have two handfuls and wish you had a third and a fourth, it doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter how smart your kids are. It doesn't matter how much they accomplish in sports. It doesn't matter how cute your wife is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what your GPA is or what you made on your SAT always working, always toiling to get more and more and more. Solomon, he says this, this is a miserable business. And you will never be able to enjoy life. Now, before I let you out of here, um, I want to make sure that you are as mad as you can possibly be. So I want to ask you a few questions, and, and, and you wish I'd let you out now instead of in five minutes or whatever it is, because these are make-you-mad questions. But I also hope they'll cause you to reflect. Question number one, are you exhausted from trying to keep up with everyone else? You know, this is one of the ills of social media, Facebook, YouTube, and these, you know, they have their positive virtues, but... Here's what happens is they create an awareness of what others have and, and where others are vacationing and what others are buying, what others are enjoying, and that drives their discontent. 
And so when we see that other people have nicer and better and newer and fancier, it creates, it stirs within us a sense of unhappiness. We think we need what they have. So question number one, are you exhausted from trying to keep up with everyone else? Question number two, it gets worse. Are you broke from trying to keep up with everyone else? Has trying to keep up with everyone else brought about credit card debt, financial problems, you know, so-and-so went on a cruise, so you think you have to, you know, so-and-so just redid their kitchen, so you think you have to, and so-and-so just got the new Samsung Galaxy phone or the iPhone or whatever, and all of a sudden yours is out of date and so slow and the battery won't stay up, and... Um, or so-and-so got to see that Lion King thingy in Springfield and, you know, I deserve to see it. Are, are you broke from trying to keep up with everyone else? Question number three. Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? You know, your house has eight-foot ceilings, they, their house has 10-foot ceilings, and now you hate your house, and you walk in, you feel like you've got a duck. You know, 8-foot ceiling is just terrible. But guess what? Even if you get 10-foot ceilings, there will be someone with 12-foot ceilings. There will always be someone with higher, bigger, nicer, newer, fancier. And when you begin trying to keep up with everyone else, you know what that is? Solomon says that's chasing the wind. Will you ever catch the wind? Nope. So are you allowing what you don't have to keep you from enjoying what you do have? Question number four. And Ooh, parents. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> Are you letting your kids enjoy life or are you driving them to be better than everybody else's kids? I mean, can you just take a deep breath and enjoy your children and let them be kids? And, you know, of course, kids need to be motivated. They need to be pushed. They, they need, you know, us as parents and grandparents to help them develop a strong work ethic. They need to be the best they can. But are you pushing them because of somebody else's kids? Or are you pushing them because of you? You know, because their high SAT score will look good on your family name and you'll be mentioned in the same breath with that. Or because they're doing well in sports will make you look good. And maybe... Maybe you didn't do as well as you wanted, and so you're living out your dream through your kids and wanting them to succeed where you were weak. You know, some of you in this, um, this is still painful for you, but that's the kind of family you grew up in. Your parents drove you, they pushed you. As times you wondered, did they even love me because it was all about performance? And here is the tendency, the sad tendency, the tragic tendency is, you know, those things that sometimes we don't like about our parents, we tend to repeat some of those same 
mistakes of our parents. You know, if they pushed us too much, sometimes we push our kids too much. If they were harsh with us, we tend to be harsh with them. So, can we just enjoy our kids and let them be kids? And yes, definitely motivate them, help them develop their gifts. But don't push them just because of somebody else's kids. Or or don't push them just because if they succeed, it'll make you feel good. Last question. And this is the ugliest question of all. Who would you secretly enjoy seeing fail? And again, if you don't believe there's sin in the world, just think about your response here. That's the ugliest part of the human spirit. You know, so-and-so is richer, smarter, faster, and then you hear they have a little bump in their life or in their marriage or with their kids, and, and you feel just a little bit of happiness. Isn't that just flat-out ugly? But imagine if all of that would go away. And we could rejoice with people when things go well. You know, the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We're good at weeping with those who weep. Somebody loses something, you know, we can weep. But rejoice with someone that had something good happen to them? We struggle. But imagine a world where we could rejoice with people when things go well and we could cry with people when things don't go well. And you see, here's the sad truth is that you can't genuinely love someone that you secretly hope will fail. This is a spiritual issue because this shows the true condition of our heart. Remember, I'm talking to you from my weakness. Yeah, when we rejoice a little bit at someone's downfall, this shows that our heart needs to be cleansed by Jesus Christ. So, together, let's knock it off. <laughs> let's stop comparing. Let's stop chasing the wind. Let's take our one handful and have tranquility. One last verse. This is such a powerful verse that just came to me this week. And as I was studying, preparing, praying, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, you'll recognize this verse. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared. You know, we're talking about comparing. Everything else is worthless when compared with what? With the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've discarded everything else, counted it all as garbage. And you know what the Greek word says? I can't say it really, but it's dung. That's what the original Greek text says. Paul was almost cussing. He wasn't, but counting it all as garbage, as dung, so that I may have Christ and become one with him. Can I read that again? It says, yes, everything else is worthless. What's everything else? Well, riches and pleasures All those kinds of things. That's worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. So why? So that I may have Christ and become one with Him. 
So uh, do you want to compare? Well, then compare everything to the priceless gain of knowing Christ. You know, as you compare yourself to others, in some things you'll be better, some things you'll be worse. But in comparison to knowing Christ, having a relationship with Him, having an intimate relationship with Him, it's all garbage, it's dung, it's refuse. It's worthless in comparison to knowing Christ and being one with Him. So the real question today is, do you know Christ? It's not, are you better? Are you smarter? Are you richer? Are you faster? It's, do you know Christ? I mean, truly know Him. Do you? Do you know Christ? If not, you can. You need to. And this morning as we wrap up our service, maybe there's somebody here that would just say, I'm not sure I know Christ and I'm not sure I'm one with Him. This morning, would you just, where you are, just say, oh God, here I am. I come to you and I want to experience the oneness with you, knowing you as my Lord and Savior. Would you bow your heads? Nobody looking around. Is there somebody here that would just say, Joe, I want to know Christ. and I know him a little bit now, but I want to know him more. I want to know him more. You want to just lift your hand. I think you know, all of us ought to just want to know him more and more and more and more. Oh, Father, I pray that, I pray, Lord, that you would give us just that priceless gift of knowing you, becoming one with you. Father, forgive us. Forgive me for those times that I've tried to get my self-worth from being better than somebody else. And Lord, forgive us. And Lord, this, this week, I pray that it would be a turning point. And Lord, as we begin our 40-day our, our spiritual focus, as we begin to decrease and Lord, as uh, John the Baptist said, I, I, I need to decrease, Christ must increase. And Lord, as we go through the next 40 days of decreasing our bad attitudes, Lord, our sin, laying aside those things that hinder, I pray that we would begin to know you and the power of your resurrection. And as we approach Easter, Lord, that this would be just an amazing season, an amazing season because we know you. Lord, we've quit comparing. And so, God, we love you. We thank you. We worship you. And this week, Lord, I pray that you would guide us every step of the way. Lord, each day we're going to be fasting something else as the book is going to lead us. And, Lord, through this, we would just keep putting off what's bad and putting on what's good. Father, thank you for ministering to my heart this week and in the hearts of those that are here. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So, the books are at the table there. Make sure you grab one per family until we see where we're going to come out. Um, don't miss next week, okay? 
And don't be late. Some of you just can't get to church on time. I don't know if that's a spiritual problem, but it's a bad habit. How about getting to church early next week? And all of God's people said, that was wimpy, but do it anyway. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.